It is great to be with you all today, and I am so very excited for River Ridge Church in this season. All of life, of course, is a faith journey, but the start of each new message series really is a step in that journey as well. And I am so excited about the series that you all are beginning today, this Set Free Message series. We're going to be talking a lot, I think, over the next four weeks about our freedom in Jesus Christ and how that leads to more fruitfulness in Jesus Christ. And as Matt said, the theme verse for this morning is Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. And you are going to continue to see this verse throughout the week, the weeks that follow. And so I just want to say it out loud for you all. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says, For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Huge thematic verse for this entire series. If you don't mind, I'd like to spend just a few minutes setting the table for this entire series. And so the first part of this message is just all about what is today and what is to come. And I want to talk about an illustration. Uh, I want to illustrate a challenge that we are to avoid, or if we're already in it in some way, we are to overcome. And in order to share that illustration, I want to uh, share a story that I recently read, and, and the story comes from 18th century religious philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, is how you say his name, I believe, and the story goes like this. There was a town where only ducks live. Every Sunday, the ducks would waddle out of their homes, and they would waddle down Main Street to the church. They waddled into the sanctuary, and they squatted in their proper pews. And then the choir would waddle in and take their seats, and the duck minister would get into the pulpit and open his duck Bible. And then he would say from the duck Bible, Ducks, you can fly. You have wings and you can fly. You can mount up and soar like eagles. No wall can contain you. No fence can hold you in. You have wings and you can fly. So go fly, ducks. And all the ducks would say, Amen. And then they would waddle on home. In my opinion, this story properly illustrates something that we would all like to avoid, or if we're already in it in some way, that we would like to overcome. We often feel like we're waddling when we could be, and we're fully capable of flying. But worse yet, a lot of times we are choosing to waddle when we know the truth that we could fly. In fact, a lot of times we're waddling even after saying amen to the fact that we can fly. I feel this is tragic. And it greatly, like the pastoral heart in me, it just greatly concerns me. I care so much about this problem or this challenge that I have decided in this season of my life to become laser-focused on helping churches like the one I belong to and individuals like all of us to identify this situation in our lives and overcome it. Here's my elevator speech on this one. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, a thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Perhaps you've read this one before. It, but Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it in abundance. Some of your translations use the phrase to the full, which I think is an awesome word picture of abundance. 
Well, many years ago, the ministry I now work for, Freedom in Christ Ministries, uh, contracted a research firm. You all know the research firm, Barna. They re- contracted the research firm to do some preliminary study for a project that the ministry was working on. And as a result of this research that was done by Barna for our ministry, uh, they discovered that, that a lot of Christians, a lot of born-again believers, perhaps somewhere upwards of 85 to 90% of Christians, bump up against verses like John chapter 10, verse 10, and they do not believe that they are experiencing what Jesus promised. They want to fly like Jesus says they can fly, but what they feel is that they're waddling instead. What tends to happen when this is the case in our lives, and all of us feel this from time to time, I believe, but what happens when uh, we experience this, when we bump, up into, bump into scriptures and promises in particular that we aren't personally experiencing, our minds, our thought life tends to go, our headspace tends to go in one of two directions. One of those directions is condemnation and shame. We start to think thoughts like, I must be failing at this thing called the Christian life. Or we go in another direction. We start to think things in our head like God must not be who he says he is. And he must not do what he says he's going to do. I personally think that either of those options is tragic. How do we overcome this? I think the Apostle Paul gives us a glimpse in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. I'll go ahead and read them for you. It says, For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk, not drink, not, I gave you milk to drink, rather, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready. Because you are still worldly, for since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? Now, on the surface, this doesn't seem like an overly encouraging passage because it comes to us in the form of reproof. It came to the Corinthians in the form of reproof, but I think it's a really loving passage. I'd like to make several quick points about this passage. First, Please note that Paul acknowledges that the Corinthians are believers. We're not talking about people who are outside the promise of going to heaven and experience eternal life in Christ. They're already believers. At the beginning of his letter to the Corinthians, he noted that they are saints. We'll talk more about that at the end of the message. They're already in. Second, notice that Paul said he was not able to address the Corinthians as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh. It's not that he didn't want to be able to address them like that. He said he could not do it. I think this is pretty astounding because we're talking about the apostle Paul here. Spiritual giant. Third, the reason that he couldn't do it was because the Corinthians weren't ready to go on to maturity. Why? Because, Paul notes, they were choosing to allow envy and strife to serve as a barrier in their relationships with God, with one another, and of course their spiritual maturity. Envy and strife were barriers to their community life and they hadn't overcome it yet. Finally, we know from the rest of the letter to the Corinthians that that those two things weren't the only things. There was more. 
Well, I think we can fill in the blanks. Our barriers, our barriers, your barriers, my barriers, our barriers may not be envy and strife, may be something else. But oftentimes there are things, a thing or things that are hindering our relationship with God, our relationships with others, our spiritual growth. We need to figure out what those things are. And so I'm just going to encourage you. Maybe you this morning, you want to fill in the blank. And you're the only one that has to see this. Just you, between you and God. Maybe you could fill in the blank. For since there is, you fill in the blank. Among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? It really could be anything. It could be fear or anxiety. It could be pride. It could be selfishness. It could be bitterness and unforgiveness. It could be anger. It could be a sin pattern like lust leading to some kind of sexual immorality. It could be any number of things that has you feeling stuck. But there's hope. I want you to hear that today. There is hope for all of us. Once the barriers are correctly identified and they are dealt with, and we replace the lie with the truth, and then we begin living from that truth, you know what we experience? Freedom. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, provides us with clear instruction about how to overcome some of these barriers. It says, do not be conformed to this age. Some of your translations say world. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect, the perfect will of God. This renewing of our minds, it looks much like repentance. Repentance doesn't have to be a buzzkill. doesn't have to be a bad word. It's as simple as identifying a lie that we are believing and rejecting it, and then replacing it with God's truth and believing it. Our behaviors, listen, our behaviors will follow whatever it is we actually believe leading to life transformation. Christian leaders, most common response when I'm talking to them about these like table-setting concepts is, yeah, yeah, that's it, isn't it? I see it in my life. I see it in other people's lives. This is it. We have to identify the thing or the things that are hindering or serving as a barrier in our relationship with God and others. We need to deal with it, overcome it, and move on in freedom and fruitfulness. Let me give you an example. For many years, I struggled with perfectionism. That was my hang-up. That's where I was stuck. Perfectionism is a risk factor, if you didn't know, for obsessive-compulsive disorder, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, eating disorder, social anxiety, social phobia, body dysmorphic disorder, whatever that is. Workaholism, self-harm, substance abuse, clinical depression, chronic stress, and heart disease. Folks, that is a long list of bad things that anyone in their right mind would not want to have to deal with, right? I want you to picture for a moment a carnival mirror or funhouse mirror. Funhouse mirrors cause you to view yourself differently than you really are. They make you appear taller or shorter or larger or thinner than you really are. They reflect a distorted version of you. Have you seen these mirrors before? Yeah. 
Basically, perfectionism causes you to view yourself like you're looking into a funhouse mirror. You view yourself differently than you really are, which is really no fun at all. When you are caught up in perfectionism like I have been in the past, you often see yourself as a failure, as always falling short of your expectations for yourself and the perceived expectations of other people. And this leads to feelings of inadequacy and shame and despair. And after a while, you start to believe the image that you see in that funhouse mirror, which is a lie. Over the years, I've befriended a couple of Christian counselors. We'll get together over lunch or for coffee, and we'll pretend like they're getting as much out of our meeting as I am. Anyway, essentially what these two friends who are Christian counselors have told me time and time and time again over the years as I've sought to identify what that thing is in my life and overcome it is they have kept bringing me back to my identity in Jesus Christ. What are those truths in Scripture that clearly tell me who I am in Christ? Folks, here's the big idea for today, and I want you guys to take this to heart. I am who God says I am, even on my worst days. And you are who God says you are, even on your worst days. Let me say that again. You are who God says you are, even on your worst days. I want to provide you with a quote that's very biblical uh, I got it from Neil T. Anderson, the founder of the ministry I now work for. Uh, I'm, I, I think it's been said by so many people in so many different ways, it's just kind of public domain now. But here's the quote. We cannot consistently behave in ways that are inconsistent with the way we view ourselves. We cannot consistently behave in ways that are inconsistent with how we view ourselves Author and pastor Matt Chandler tweeted a while back something along these lines. Knowing who we are is the best way to get where Jesus wants to take us. These are two ways of saying the same thing. When my kids were much, 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 much smaller, we watched a few movies over and over and over again. Those of you parents, maybe you've experienced this before. And in the season of life that we were in, when my kids were at that age, we watched Ice Age 2, The Meltdown, over and over and over again. I want to show you a picture from Ice Age 2, The Meltdown. I think it's going to come up on, no, we don't have it? Oh, shoot, okay. Anyway, the, the, picture, uh, the picture was um, uh, of of uh, Manny, who was played by Ray Romano, and Ellie, who was played by Queen Latifah. They were both mammoths. The funny thing about Ice Age 2, the meltdown, is the plot line is, is that Ellie believes that she's a possum. She's a mammoth who believes that she's a possum. And so she's hanging upside down from trees as a mammoth. And the problem was is that she kept falling on her head. And the only thing that she had to do to overcome continually falling on her head is come to the realization that she's really a mammoth. The moment she discovered she was really a mammoth, her doing in life, the things that she was doing in life, began to flow from her being in life, who she was. We won't always live out what we profess to believe, folks. 
We won't always live out what we profess to believe, but we will always live out what we actually believe. That's why believing who we are in Christ, who God says we are even on our worst days, and living from that true identity is such a big part of overcoming whatever has us feeling stuck so that we can go on to being fruitful. Now I want to turn, uh, have you turn to Ephesians chapter 2 really fast. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 if you'd like. The Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 with the phrase, In the beginning. There's no beginning and end to God. We know this. He's infinite. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's ever-present. But there was a beginning to earth, and there was a beginning to everything that exists on this earth. Our God created us. When God created mankind, beginning with Adam and Eve, he made us unique. He made us in his image. When he looked at everything else that he had created on planet earth, During creation, following creation, he said, it is good. And then he created Adam and Eve, and he looked at them, and he said, now it is very good. And this distinction is huge because it marks us as people, human beings, made in the image of God as special. And this is what I want you to hear, is in the beginning, Adam and Eve were accepted, and they were significant, and they were secure. They knew this about themselves. They were accepted by God. They knew this about themselves because they had been created by him. And there was this sense that they belonged to him and they belonged to one another. And they were significant in that they had been given a huge role in this world. And that is to oversee all of creation, to steward everything that slithered and flew and, and, and walked and swam. And they were secure in that we read at the end of Genesis chapter 2 that they were literally and figuratively naked before God and each other. And they were unashamed. There was no shame. God gave them access in the Garden of Eden to eat from the tree of life. And as a result, they could never die. They would never die physically or spiritually. They would be fruitful and multiply across the whole earth in union with God and as his image bearers to all creation. But many of us know what happened next, right? Genesis chapter 3 happened next. A fallen angel by the name of Lucifer or Satan, the devil, wanted to destroy what God had created. And so he tempted God's image bearers, Adam and Eve, to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the only tree that they were not allowed to eat from or even touch, or they would die both spiritually in that they'd be separated from God and physically. They gave in to this temptation, of course. They disobeyed God, and death entered our world. Adam and Eve died spiritually in that they were separated from God. They would ultimately die physically because of their rebellion. Our world really experiences a whole lot of brokenness, all because that happened. This brings me to Ephesians chapter 2. We will get to the good news in a moment, but first I would like you to notice the first several verses of this chapter. They describe our natural condition as human beings, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, And we were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. All of us are guilty of this, of course. We're guilty of trespasses and sins. And as a result, we all start out spiritually dead. 
and therefore separated from God. And when this was true of our lives, the Bible tells us that we were actually living under the authority of the devil and we were regularly catering to whatever our bodies, our eyes, and our egos wanted. That's the bad news. The good news, though, shows up in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. I love those first two words in verse 4, but God, if they aren't the biggest but in the Bible, if that's not the biggest but in the Bible, then it's close, right? It's close. We are dead in the trespasses and sins, but God. We walked according to the ways of this world and the prince of the power of this air, the devil, but God. We once lived out our fleshly desires, but God. We once carried out the desires of the body and mind, but God. We were by nature children of wrath, but God. That but God changed everything. Remember how in the beginning Adam and Eve were accepted and significant and secure? Now all of us who are in Christ Jesus by his grace and through faith, we also are accepted, significant, and secure. We've been completely restored from the brokenness that came in through Genesis chapter 3. I also want to point out how many times you come across the phrase in Christ. It shows up three times just in this short passage, along with with him, which shows up another three times just in this short passage. This indicative truth, this in Christ truth, precedes almost all of Paul's practical, uh, practical application type teaching. We all tend to gravitate towards how can I improve my marriage? How can I be a better parent? How can I handle my money? How can I, how can I, how can I, how can I? But first we have to recognize how important it is that we are in Christ. It precedes how we treat one another, Ephesians chapter 4. How we live out our Jesus roles in our marriage, Ephesians chapter 5. How we raise our children, Ephesians chapter 6. Or conduct spiritual warfare against our very real enemy, Ephesians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand what it means to be in Christ. Author and theologian Neil Anderson has made the point, for every verse in the Bible that talks about Christ being in God's children, there are ten verses that talk about God's children being in Christ. For example, just in the book of Ephesians, six short chapters shows up 40 times. 40 times in six short chapters. Once we've put our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and our relationship with God has been restored, everything changes, folks. We can say, in Christ, I am accepted. Verses 4 and 5 again says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. You see, in Christ, God is willing to receive us. That's what accepted means. Once we're restored, we're received. He is willing to receive us because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins when he died on the cross. The price for our redemption has already been paid. There are two words in this passage that are worth defining. The first word is mercy, but God who is rich in mercy. The second word is grace. It says you are saved by grace. 
Folks, mercy means that God doesn't give us what we do deserve. We deserve his wrath. That's what we deserve. His wrath because up to the point that we placed our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we were suppressing the truth about him in all kinds of ways. But in Christ, he doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace means that God gives us what we don't deserve. We don't deserve his love or, his etern- or the et- or eternal life with him, but in Christ we receive both. As a result, we are accepted. We can also say in Christ, I am significant. We read in verses 6 and 7, He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages we might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. I want all of us to notice something here in these, two ver- these several verses. There are a couple of times in the past tense, there are a couple things in the past tense rather that don't seem like they should be in the past tense grammatically. That grammar is there on purpose. The moment we put our trust in Jesus Christ to be our Savior, it's as if we were raised with him when he was raised from the dead. And then when he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, spiritually speaking, when we put our trust in Christ, we also were raised there, Ephesians chapter 2 says. We share in Jesus' resurrected life, a life that is indestructible, in union with God, and led by the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you might ask, how does that work? And my answer to that is, I don't know. Here's where I'm just going with it because the Bible clearly teaches it. One commentator in the ESV study Bible has put it this way, it will take all of eternity to fathom God's love and those who are saved will never plumb the depths of it. In Christ, we are significant. We can also say in Christ, I am secure. We read in verses eight and nine, for you are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of, It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. What do these verses that I just read, verses 8 and 9, have to do with security? Well, uh, if salvation is up to you and me, we're in a bit of trouble. We're in a whole lot of trouble. But if salvation is up to God, the creator of heavens and earth, then we're good to go. A few weeks back, I was watching a teaching that Sadie Robertson of Duck Dynasty fame gave at the Passion Conference uh, over the holidays. And she made the point, her whole message was about our identity in Jesus Christ, which is why I was watching it. Uh, But she made this real cool point. And the point was that it doesn't really matter what God has to say to us if we have the wrong view of God. She said it's only because God is creator, maker of heaven and earth, almighty, all-knowing, and ever-present The God who chose to knit you together in your mother's womb and restore you to himself by grace and through faith alone. That him saying who you say you are matters. Now I'd like to point us toward communion. At this time, I would like you to take out your phone if you have it. Take out your phone. I'm giving you permission to take out your phone And I want you to turn it to selfie mode. I don't know what that's called. You turn your camera on, you hit those kind of those circular arrows. Turn it to selfie mode. I want you to be able to see yourself in the phone, all right? See yourself in the phone. You're looking at yourself. 
Now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read a bunch of truths over you and I just want you to wa- I just want these truths to wash over you while you look at yourself in the mirror. You don't have to do anything else but look at yourself in the mirror. I want you to let these truths wash over you. If there is a lie in your head right now as to who you are, I want you to reject it and I want you to replace it with what I'm reading to you. Here goes. In Christ, I am accepted. I am God's child. I am Jesus' chosen friend. I have been made holy and accepted by God. I am united with the Lord and one with him in spirit. I have been bought with a price. I belong to God. I am a member of Christ's body, part of his family. I am a saint, a holy one. I have been adopted as God's child. I have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. I have been bought back and redeemed and forgiven of all my sins. I am complete in Christ. Are you still looking at yourself? I know it's weird. Just keep doing it. In Christ, I am significant. I am salt and light for everyone around me. I am a part of the true vine, joined to Christ and able to produce much fruit. I have been handpicked by Jesus to bear fruit. I am a personal witness of Christ. I am God's temple where the Holy Spirit lives. I am at peace with God, and he has given me the work of making peace between himself and other people because I am a minister of reconciliation. I am God's co-worker. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly places. I am God's workmanship. I may approach God with freedom and confidence. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In Christ, I am secure. I am free forever from punishment and condemnation. I am assured that all things work together for my good. I am free from any condemning charges against me. I cannot be separated from the love of God. I have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. I am hidden with Christ in God. I am sure the good work God has started in me will be finished. I am a citizen of heaven. I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. I can, I can find grace and mercy in the time of need. I am born of God, and the evil one cannot touch me. I am not the great I am, but by the grace of God, I am who I am. Let's be honest. Some of us don't like what we see. In other words, the way that we look at ourselves has been so distorted for so long that we don't need a funhouse mirror to accentuate our faults. We're already convinced of them. I get it. Folks, I have been there. I know right where you're seated if you're sitting there. I'm telling you the only way out from there is to turn to Jesus, return to the gospel, and continue to allow the gospel to transform the way you think. I'll finish with this. In the New Testament, over 300 times, unbelievers are identified as sinners, while believers, on the other hand, are identified over 200 times as holy ones, righteous ones, or saints, and never clearly the other way around. The term saint is used in the Bible to refer to the believer, and sinner is used in reference to the identity of the unbeliever. So remind yourself and encourage each other this week, you are a saint. You are a saint. It's not a title. It is not a title. You didn't earn it. It reflects the fact that at the moment you put your trust in the finished work of Jesus, you became a new creation. Your very nature at the very core of your being has been entirely transformed into something new. 
You're transformed from being someone who is spiritually dead and separated from God to someone who is accepted, significant, and secure in Jesus Christ. We are not trying to become children of God, folks. We are children of God who are becoming like Jesus. As disciples of Jesus Christ, one of our key roles is to embrace the truth about our new identities in him and encourage others to do the same. The message and the method of our freedom and maturity in this faith is what has already been done for us through Jesus Christ. Communion is a time to remember that. I believe that the worship team is going to be coming back up here uh, to lead us through a time of communion. Communion is something that we do in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. If you have put your trust in Jesus, I encourage you to prepare for communion by looking through this list of who am I statements on that bookmark that you were given coming through the door. This is how you prepare your hearts for communion today. Look at that list on the bookmark that you were given this morning. Remind yourselves of these truths and what Jesus has done for you to make you accepted, significant, secure in him. Maybe this week, find one or two that really matter to you, like they stick out to you on that list, and tell somebody else about it. Thank God for who he's declared you to be, even on your worst days, because of your faith in Christ's body on a cross, represented by the bread that you are about to partake, the shed blood represented by the juice that you are about to drink, and his victorious resurrection. If you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus Christ, but you want to know more about this, I encourage you to find somebody in the lobby to talk about it with. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, so very much for the honor and the privilege of being accepted, significant, and secure in Jesus Christ. I am thankful, Lord, that I am no longer under the authority of my enemy catering to anything that my mind and my body and my ego wanted. But rather, Lord, that I am seated with you in the heavenly realm, spiritually speaking. And I am who you say I am, even on my worst days. And the more that I believe that, the more my behavior, my life, will reflect your image and what you have done for me. I thank you, Lord, so much for that. That, Lord, every one of us in here who have put our trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross and through his resurrection, that we can fly, that we can mount up on eagles' wings and fly rather than waddle through life. I thank you for that, Lord. May we fly this week. May we walk in our freedom and bear much fruit. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.